None of us in our best days could have envisioned how far we would have come at this point by now. I mean, Ringling Brothers, gone. SeaWorld, changing. You know, vegan food, everywhere. Veganism, not so crazy anymore, and so on. Ten years ago, it would be impossible to believe any of that stuff. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. In the United States today, 10 billion land animals are raised and killed for food annually. That's over 19,000 animals per minute, about 1.1 million animals during the length of this podcast. The numbers are staggering. And yet, As our guest today has pointed out, as far as the federal law is concerned, farm animals have no protections for how they're raised at all. Ten billion farm animals and almost zero legal protections. Most people assume that some legal protection exists for farm animals, but that's not the reality. The legal status of farm animals is different than that of other animals. Farm animals, along with birds, lab rats, and mice, and invertebrates like octopuses, are not counted as animals at all under the country's primary federal animal protection law, the Animal Welfare Act. As our guest wrote in 2002, quote, While non-farmed animals do have certain legal protections, albeit inadequate and poorly enforced, upon which future legal developments can be based, it is not unfair to say that, as a practical matter, Farmed animals have no legal protection at all. As far as the law is concerned, they simply do not exist. One reason for this reality is the obvious fact that people do not like to think about how farmed animals are raised and killed. This natural reluctance has been used by the farmed animal industry to perform an extraordinary legal sleight of hand. It has made farmed animals disappear from the law. End quote. For the most part, in the U.S., The law merely trusts agribusiness to treat animals decently. The law has placed the fox in charge of guarding the hen house. It remains the reality in the U.S. today that most farm animals have no legal protections for how they're raised. But at the state level, the legal status of farm animals is changing, thanks largely to the remarkable vision, strategic savvy, and hard work of our guest, David Wolfson. For over three decades, David Wolfson has been a hero, a behind-the-scenes star quarterback, and a highly effective orchestrator of the animal rights and welfare movements in the U.S. Imagine a passionate animal welfare activist. You are not imagining David Wolfson. David is the global executive director of Milbank, one of the world's premier international corporate law firms, and a partner of the firm's corporate group since 2003. At Milbank, he represents domestic and international companies in connection with a wide variety of business matters, such as mergers and acquisitions, private equity, and venture capital investments. He has been called, aptly, the movement's Superman. In addition to his work leading Milbank globally, David teaches animal law and policy at NYU. He has previously taught animal law at Columbia, Harvard, Cordozo, and Yale. He is the author of a number of seminal articles and chapters on animal protection law and represents pro bono many of the leading animal protection groups, including the Humane Society of the United States, Mercy for Animals, and the Farm Sanctuary. With colleagues, 
He pioneered the first successful farm animal protection ballot initiative in Florida in 2002, a strategy that he has helped to replicate in many other states since. When David Wolfson went to law school at Columbia, farmed animal law was not a field. It didn't exist. Perhaps more so than any other person, David Wolfson has made it one. In doing so, he has become one of the farm animals' greatest modern champions. David Wolfson, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Pleasure to be here. You play a very special and unusual role in the animal welfare movement in that you're involved in everything and an expert in this field, and yet you have an independent career, so you're viewing it from a high vantage point. Can you explain what your role is in the in the animal welfare social movement today? Sure. Um, and thank you both for such a lovely introduction. As my uh, my father used to make the joke saying, my, how do I go, my, my father would have been very proud and my mother would have believed you. I think that's how the joke goes. <laughs> so... Um, my role has changed, you know, as as the movement has progressed. But as you correctly said, I have uh, been a practicing lawyer in a large law firm, Millbank, uh, for a while. I started there in 1993, and I grew up on doing corporate transactional work. But at the same time, I also did pro bono work for a large number of groups. And I also uh, taught and wrote in the area of animal law. And that is one of the wonderful things. Uh, There are many not wonderful things about being a lawyer. But one of the wonderful things about being a lawyer, if you're so inclined, is you can go into an environment, particularly in large law firms, and they will give you this platform to do many, many things. And so... um, I started advising law for, uh, advising animal protection groups, and over time, we started to do different things with various teams. But at the same time, I kept doing what I was doing in my day job, um, and then things just sort of developed. And in the last three years, I'm actually now in a management role where I sort of oversee and manage the firm globally. Uh, and so, I'm continuing to do my pro bono legal practice a lot, but my actual private practice for clients is diminished as I play a more of a management role for the firm. That's fascinating, particularly in in recent years as corporations have been declared persons, but animals have not. Mm-hmm. Yet you bridge this divide. How do you how do you think about that as, and your role approaching, which is very unusual, I think, in terms of corporate lawyers focused for fun and for meaning and everything else on on helping animals simultaneously? I think that's true in the sense that typically when you think of a lawyer that works in the animal rights movement and there are many excellent lawyers, you think of them bringing litigation and working on cases and I never have done that. I've played a role in some of those cases as a sort of consultant advisor but that's not my specialty. Where I have sort of played a role has been more on the sort of strategy and advisory side of things and then the policy work, whether it be the ballot initiatives or legislation or maybe some other things. And what's been interesting, of course – as I'm sure other guests of yours have spoken about, is that how social change occurs in the modern day is a little different than how it used to occur. And so now the role of corporations, the role of transparency, disclosure, labeling, interactions with corporations, social media campaigns, all of those things are as relevant as the more sort of classic demonstrations, legislation and litigation. And I do think that my role on the sort of commercial corporate side has been very well placed as the movement switched um, and has allowed me to be in the room in a whole number of situations advising my clients or understanding the situation. So, you know, I've been very lucky uh, to do that. And then also I think just age and experience, both good and bad, 
um, has allowed me just through having a variety of um, roles, whether it be in my corporate clients or managing a law firm or understanding different strategies or working in the animal protection movement or writing or teaching, if you're lucky enough to be able to participate in all of those areas, they inevitably tend to interact and create something you know, some element of knowledge plus that can be useful in some way in whatever thing you're trying to do. So I've been very, very fortunate to to be in this spot. Um, it's allowed me to, as you say, sort of be a little bit under the radar while still playing heavily in the space uh, behind the scenes a little bit. You've written extensively on how it is that big agriculture basically manages to sustain the status quo of treating animals mm-hmm. as, as just tools. And one of the ways is through this exception clause. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a kind of tautology. Can you take us through what that sure, is? Sure, sure. Um, so as you said very nicely at the beginning, uh, the there is no federal law as it relates to how animals are treated when they're raised for food from an ethical perspective, a welfare perspective. There may be some federal laws that deal with like health considerations in terms of human health considerations and sometimes they cross over. Um, so when I first got into studying the issue, I attempted to determine what laws existed to deal with how farm animals were raised for food. And it all started, and I, I think you may have heard the story before when I was in your class, Rebecca. Um, you should tell it again. Yeah, next. Basically, this, this is when you're a law student. Yeah, basically mm-hmm. I was procrastinating. I was sitting on the library floor in Columbia not doing what I should be doing when I was at law school at Columbia Law School in the early 90s. And I decided to pull out a state statute and just read the law on animal issues. I was interested in animal issues at that point. And every state in the United States has a standard what they call anti-cruelty law, a law that prescribes what is or is not illegal in relation to how you treat animals. And so I pulled out the local state statute for Alabama or whatever it was. And I read it and it was sort of interesting to me. And those were the days where we had books. And so you could sit on the floor of a library and go and just pull out another book. And they had all of the states lined up, Alabama, Arizona, you know, and so on. So I pulled out another one and I noticed that the second one I read had an exemption for common or normal farming practices, meaning that a lot of things were prohibited by the statute, but if you fell within that definition of common or normal farming practices, you could do whatever you wanted when you raised your animals for food. It would not violate the law. So then I sat down and I basically spent a couple of hours reading every state statute for animals and I compiled a list of what states had what and what states didn't. And then I remembered because this was in the old days when you couldn't just hit an internet link and have an updated source. So if a book was published, um, it was five years old, three years old, two years old. So in the law schools, what they used to do was have these things called pocket parts. And so every three months, someone would come in and pull out a piece of paper from the back and put in another piece of paper. And they would do that for five years, and then they would just print a new book that contained all of the information in the pocket part. And what the pocket part did was it would say, what's happened since this book was published? And then you would find the section, and you'd compare it and see if anything had changed. So I started looking at all the pocket parts for all of these state statutes to see what had happened in the last two years, three years, four years. And I found like a another eight states had amended their statutes in the last short period of time to carve out a normal common farming practice. So then I sort of sat down and just looked at the situation and I said, okay, so if you're raising animals for food in the United States, 
What limits how you treat them? The first thing would be federal law, and you very nicely stated at the beginning of this podcast how there is no federal law that deals with how animals are raised for food from a welfare perspective, really. And then I was like, okay, so the only other place you could go to is a state anti-cruelty law. And so I went through all the states, and it turned out that the majority of them, and particularly of interest to me, the growing majority of them on a very short-term basis in the last two or three or four years has specifically exempted their statutes to make it clear that even if someone was going to try and use them to say that a particular method of raising an animal was cruel, they could not be utilized. They were simply exempt. And that led to my you know, very basic conclusion, which was that when you put the two together, you ended up with a result where animals really had no legal protection because you either had states with these specific exclusions, which were growing, and meant that if you're doing something that everybody else was doing that was common or customary or accepted or normal – you were immune from any prosecution. Or even when you didn't have that exemption, there were many other reasons why the laws were problematic. And then voila, I came up with this you know, fascinating conclusion, which I always used to joke, which was that um, it, I, I made a career of being an expert in farmed animal law because there was no law to be an expert in. And that made it sort of easy. The fact that you could do whatever you wanted in the United States when you raise an animal for food and be completely immune from legal prosecution. That's a, an amazing realization, though, too, because I think that I didn't know until you know I was in college, and I think most people don't know who aren't focused on this issue, and are shocked to find out that farm animals actually still do have no protection for the most part, at least at the federal level, with the exception of what you did next. Right. Which is so. Where did this paper? So you wrote this paper yeah, when you were in. I wrote this paper Columbia, as an independent and study, and I, then I got to meet a guy called Henry Spira, mm -hmm. who, for those of you who don't know, was the first really. Um, notable animal rights activist who was very successful in moving, educating and beginning to move organizations away from testing cosmetics on animals. And he had run some very successful campaigns in that space in the 80s and 90s. I got friendly with him and that's how I met Peter Singer. This is the early 90s. And Henry was very interested in my work and he said, I, I really would like to put this out in some type of a booklet. I think people should know because as I think I said in my first version of this article, people may have different views about how animals should be treated when they're raised for food, but there is a belief that there's something in place to at least prevent the worst excesses of inhumane treatment. And so for him and for me, the point was to at least educate the public as that, not, that was not a truthful statement. There was an absence of anything. There was nothing. So Henry um, put that out. And then I started working with Gene Bauer at um, Farm Sanctuary. And we did a, a few things together. And then Gene and I really felt strongly that there was an opportunity to promote better laws at the state level since there was an absence of anything. Um, and that the ballot initiative would make sense to do that given how hard it would be to do it any other way. And, um, and then we started working on and with Wayne Paselli, who was at HSUS, who was the master with his entire team from the fund and HSUS on ballot initiatives generally. And we basically attempted to persuade him and the movement that the time was ready for a ballot initiative. And that led to Florida. And then that led to a whole bunch of other things that came out of it. And at that time, what was the status of the debate between the rights and the point of view? And the, yeah. uh, it was pretty, you know, pretty typically animal rightsy. I mean, I would say it was quite um, intense. Um, I mean, this was the mid-90s, so we just come out of the you know, 70s and 80s and the growth of animal rights and the beginning of a very sort of abolitionistic perspective. And then it becomes a question of tactics. And then there were 
people who are obviously making very fine distinctions between welfare and rights. And of course, the growth of animal rights was meant to replace animal welfare. That is, animal welfare was concerned with animal welfare, but always uh, made the interest of the animal subservient to whatever human interest that we may have that makes it justifiable to do what we're doing. And animal rights was meant to supplant that. And so then there became obviously a real focus on, well, what are you here, an animal rights person or an animal welfare person? So it's a very good question. Firstly, there was definitely some debate about what we were doing. There were some groups that were unhappy um, with the issue being addressed, either because they felt that we were not we were taking it on a too sort of limited of animal welfareistic perspective, which is partly a tactical con- consequence based upon how a ballot initiative works. There's only so much you can do, um, and I think also a concern that whether or not the approach would be successful full stop or period. I'm in America, period. So um, <laughs> the question of whether the American public was open to um, a change because when I – in the early 90s, the leading animal rights issue would have been vivisection more than anything appropriately. I mean it's, it's not an unimportant issue and maybe fur and cosmetic testing. But if you wanted to talk about farmed animal issues at that moment, most people were not very supportive of that. There was a feeling that – it was just too embedded in American culture that the American public would not be receptive to any arguments about that and so that anyone who was attempting to uh, put together a campaign around that was on a fool's quest. And I actually remember having an interesting meeting with someone who was the head of an animal protection group telling them we wanted to do this ballot initiative on farmed animal issues and, and that individual saying you're just – it's a joke. Why would you even bother? That's not going to work. So – the combination of those two things, like either you're wasting your time, it's not going to work, or what you're asking for is either too little or too minimalistic. And then, of course, that leads into a question of what is effective strategy. So to, to go back to the original question, yes, there was certainly some tension between animal welfare and animal rights at the time. I actually still feel that tension even today, but it doesn't get articulated so much as animal rights for animal welfare. It gets articulated more in, is that an effective strategy? Is it, are you doing good by trying to moderate the way animals are raised, or should you just be pushing for veganism or education or, or whatever? Um, so it hasn't gone away. It's just, you know, it's altered itself. But that was the time when Gary Francione was writing um, Rain Without Thunder, you know, claiming the new welfareists and they were they were all the people that were basically doing the work that I was doing. So I guess I would have been a new welfareist too, according to him. And a question of semantics. Are you an animal rights person? Are you an animal welfare person? Um, are we asking for – is this, uh, you know, an evolutionary change or is it actually an animal welfare change that won't go to any good? I mean all the good stuff the social justice movements fight about all the time. It's an interesting vantage point that you have on the social justice movement, I think, too, and an unusual one. It reminds me of a piece in The New Yorker that I just read recently, but that was published in 2003 by Michael Spector, mm-hmm. and it was a profile of Ingrid Newkirk, mm. the longtime head of PETA. And um, Michael Spector writes in the piece about the animal welfare movement at the time um, and says basically that it's been argued repeatedly and he seems to imply this is true for the animal welfare movement, that you need to have groups of different levels of extremeness. Mm -hmm. And so for every Malcolm X, there's a Martin Luther King and for every Andrea Dworkin, there's a Gloria Steinem Mm -hmm. and for every PETA, there's an HSUS. Absolutely. And I wonder how do you see the groups working together in that way? Well, I mean back then, you know, it was a little bit different in that there was probably more difference and in, in extremity amongst them. I mean, I'm very supportive of that mm-hmm. viewpoint, although it, it's, it, it does, I think, sometimes undermine, it, it undersell certain people like Martin Luther King was far from 
you know, a it's very true. You know, I mean, he was yeah. it was radical in the extreme ways in that context and in that moment. And they always like, well, there was a Malcolm X, and he was like sort of in the middle. He was far from in the middle, and mm. you know, but it's very much a historical moment. So um, I think that's true. Uh, and then times change, and I don't know now how you would things get a little less clear over time. I think the the lines were a little clearer in the 90s. You know, Peter was this, and now, I, you know, Peter is many things, supports many different campaigns, does many different things, It's hard, and, and has been through many evolutions in the last 15 mm-hmm. years and taken many different positions. So, but um, I certainly believe that it's very uh, hard, and I, I think somewhat arrogant and narcissistic to claim that you have an overarching strategy that must be applied consistently by every animal protection group or any organization in any social justice struggle and that in fact usually you need a combination of tactics and thoughts and and approaches to make things work because this stuff is incredibly hard to predict and to understand how it will play out. Which framework spoke to you most when you were first entering the space? And You've written about encountering Animal Liberation Singer's book. Yeah, I mean, Singer, for most of us, I think, and that's not to undermine Tom Reagan's book, which was a very valuable book, but I, I, in my own experience, when I speak to other people in the movement and how they were impacted and turned on, Peter's book, you know, was the one that really moved them. Um, and so I was very much drawn to the way he saw things. In fact, I think for most people who are aware or heightened to the animal issue as they grew up as children or as they, you know, hit teenagehood, reading Peter Singer is not so much um, eye-opening as more like confirming, just that hadn't, you hadn't been able to articulate it as cleanly and as brilliantly as he had. But once you read it, you're like, well, yes, I understand that. In fact, I didn't know it, but I'd been thinking that. I just hadn't had it put out in front of me. So Peter was someone that I felt, you know, very aligned to. And then obviously Henry Spirer was very close to Peter and I moved became very close to Henry. And so there was alignment there. Although interestingly, Peter's a very interesting man for many, many reasons. But he's an incredibly pragmatic and um, strategic uh, political activist, as well as being a philosopher. And so, um, you know, how you could articulate in the 90s what the right approach was. I was always, um, and that may be what made it work at that particular moment, was um, and why I was drawn to Henry, which is I was always very interested in the ideology, but I never felt the ideology should by itself drive the action. Um, and so I was also very focused on on doing something. Um, and that's obviously the people who were were playing in the space at that moment, whether it be Gene or Wayne. We all had our views about the ideology, but we were all looking for an effective, pragmatic strategy that would cause change. Um, And we were operating in an arena where there were some advantages and disadvantages. The advantages and disadvantages were sort of the same. That was we had nothing, you know, and that's both a good or bad place to be. So our primary goal was to achieve something, sort of anything, to begin, you know, a process of conversion and transformation. Um, And so we became far more, at least I was always more focused on the tactics uh, to cause immediate change than I was on the ideological struggle because from my perspective, I didn't really think that the ideological struggles were actually that either distinct or important for what really needed to be done at that moment. 
And then there's an interesting intersection, which you were also involved in, of the ideological struggle and the practical tactic in the legal personhood battle that um, is being waged largely by Stephen Steve, Wise yeah. of the Non-Human Rights Project. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who's seen the documentary about Stephen Wise and his case on behalf of Tommy the chimpanzee trying to win Tommy um, legal personhood based on habeas corpus, in this documentary, Unlocking the Cage, you can see David Wolfson sitting behind the bench, grilling Steve Wise, lobbing questions at him in preparation from, um, in a moot court type setting in preparation for an upcoming hearing. And so I wonder, so you've been involved in addition to the more gradualist, very strategic work of ballot initiatives, et cetera, you've also been involved in the, this bigger personhood uh, debate and, and attempt, which would be uh, a combination of the ideology and blowing up the system, basically, if you were to suddenly have animals have standing in this way, or yeah. some animals at least. Yes. I mean, Stephen's work has been obviously very much Stephen's work. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about Stephen. It's very much his own vision and his, you know, his... His process, but I mean, I've been fortunate to be involved in a lot of different ways. I mean, there was a period, so I was obviously involved in, you know, a sort of classic public policy approach of drafting legislation and passing it. We just used the ballot initiative mechanic rather than a legislative, a typical legislative process. Um, and then I was certainly, you know, assisting of Steve when he was doing what he was doing, which is a more sort of, you know, hail mary type of, or, or, or a, a, you know, dr- dramatic thing. There was a period in time in the 90s and maybe a little bit later when the whole issue of, you know, how you value animals in terms of loss of companionship or emotional distress around dogs and cats that became a really interesting issue because there was a debate like if you wanted – if you believe the argument that animals are legally classified as property, as things, and they need to be moved from things into something else – quasi-property, quasi-things, persons, whatever, then for a while there were, you know, there was a real focus on the two extremes. One was the more sort of let's focus on those that are genetically or biologically closest to us and try and draw connections to demonstrate that, in fact, the classification makes no sense. And so that that leads us to Steve's approach, right? Mm -hmm. But the other approach is actually let's draw attention to those that are physically closest to us, dogs and cats, and and really highlight how when they're killed and people care about them, whether through veterinary malpractice or whatever, that people don't actually view them as things. They don't relate to them as things. They're not emotionally impacted by them as if they were just things. And use that to try and change the way that they're valued and so on. So there are a number of different ways that people have been trying to uh, deal with the property classification of animals. So I had the, you know, the privilege of playing in that space a little bit too. Also, I've been lucky enough to like play in spaces where we've done you know, public-private partnerships with city governments to try and you know, deal with I, uh, cat and dog overpopulation issues and using relationships between city government and private. Again, that, that is for those of people who are listening who are interested in legal careers. I mean one of the advantages of being a lawyer is you get to be able to advise clients in a whole host of different situations. I mean Steve's approach has is, is, you know, obviously been incredibly successful. Um, I think any way you cut it, uh, the amount of attention that he's brought to the issue and the ultimate you know, truth in his argument. I've never doubted that Steve's argument was correct. I've, and he knows this because we've spoken about it many times. I have doubted whether his argument will be ultimately successful in the forum that he's making it. Um, although we're certainly getting better di- language and dialogue with the courts now than we had three years ago or five years ago or seven years ago. Um, and you see his approach popping up in other countries around the globe. So, um, you know, and it, it's back to your sort of question, though, of a spectrum of, of approaches, whether it be Peter or this or that. 
you know, I'm open to anything, any of these approaches to do something. Those rulings from the cases that Steve brought make for fascinating reads Mm -hmm. um, because you can see the judges, you can just feel that they're compelled in many cases by what he's saying. And I remember one of them had said something. She quoted um, someone who'd said, future generations, times Mm -hmm. can blind us to truths that future generations can see. And it's, it was, um, I mean, it's, it's, and it's heartbreaking because you because you just you can kind of feel the struggle in those, and I wonder what that's. I mean, from the perspective of someone who's on the front line for this movement, strategizing that must be just also agonizing. Yes, I mean, but but it is. But at the same time, one mustn't forget how incredibly far we have gone that we're getting frustrated by the fact that there's a judge struggling with the question (laughs) where we never would have envisioned the judge even considering the question, let alone struggling with it. But, but, you know, those things are are definitely, um, you know, I mean, again, how social change occurs is a fascinating thing. Uh, And a lot of it's luck and timing. You know, you can make a brilliant argument or run a brilliant campaign in 1930s and it won't work, but it will in the 1950s. I mean, and you didn't do anything wrong in the 1930s. It just wasn't going to happen then. So, you know, there are so many factors that can go into making something happen. One of my favorite quotes is, um, I can't remember, I think it was uh, Paul Samuelson, the economist, and it was actually Steve's book, Rattling the Cage, which is, change happens funeral by funeral. You know, the, argue, the idea that we persuade people who disagree with us to change their minds is not really how change happens. What happens is that people who have not formed their opinion or are beginning to a- analyze the issue when faced with new information change their mind as they grow up. And you see this perfectly, for example, on issues of gay rights or even issues of how people are defining themselves under se- in, in, in the way they define their sexual orientation. You're not necessarily going to persuade someone at 50 to reclassify themselves. But if you ask a bunch of 18 to 25-year-olds, they did a recent poll in the United Kingdom how they would classify themselves, completely different. So, um, so I think, you know, it, it's just it's. It, I'm not frustrated by it really because I, it's so much more. And you probably I know, I know you've had a number of people on this on this podcast, and I'm sure for those of us who have been in it long enough, none of us in our best days could have envisioned how far we would have come at this point by now. So you know, and I actually have the fun pleasure of teaching you know students, and they all are very frustrated, and they should be, particularly on issues of the planet and climate change and everything else. But when when we talk about what do you think change is is possible, and they're like, how how is it possible? And you're like, well, nothing that we I mean, Ringling Brothers gone, Sea World changing, you know, vegan food everywhere, veganism not so crazy anymore, and so on. Ten years ago, it would be impossible to believe any of that stuff. So I agree with the point. It's frustrating. But I'm also just staggered, staggered by the amount of change that has happened in the time that we've been focused on it. I was reading about, um, I think Missouri had passed a law last year trying to regulate the use of meat. Meat, yeah, milk. By meat alternative yeah. companies. And so, and, the, and I know that there's some legal scholarship in the works on whether or not that, mm-hmm. how that relates to the First Amendment, how, I mean, it's, so, yeah, we were curious about what you make of that. And Well, I mean, obviously, I think it's pretty obvious that the approach, you know, is a, is a good one. Um, and I think it's, definitely, you know, having success. 
the relationship between – I mean, I started in the movement where my primary focus was animal ethics with some interest in animal – in environmentalism. And now I'm, a, I'm in a movement and my own personal interests in my personal space are, you know, climate change and environmentalism and human health and human rights and animal ethics because all of these things are tied in together. And I do think that the, those issues are, you know, the approach that we're taking with – alternative meat products and the various ways that you can describe what that means to be a positive development for most of those things, although, of course, nothing is perfect and we can definitely point to things, you know, that are problematic around it. I I find the debates around should it be meat or should it be milk sort of, you know, personally, I, I mean, I think it's great. I'm not, it doesn't bother me. I don't see... I don't see the tactics that the industry are taking as being particularly obstructive. I mean, they're clearly obstructive in terms of legal regulation and, and you know, various steps of a process, but I don't believe them to be obstructive at all in terms of actually stopping social change. It's very similar to the ag-gag laws that people speak about, which, as I'm sure your listeners know, basically tried to make it illegal for people to go undercover in various um, states to do filming of farms, intensive confinement. And ALDF and others have done some terrific work around these. But I'm not, I was never particularly concerned that even if those laws was somewhat successful at that, that would have caused the change to stop. So I, I, you know, oh, we can't go in the farms anymore. Well, that solved the whole problem. Everyone's fine. You know, you can see the interest in the generations that are coming. You can see the connections with all these other issues. You can see the value and importance of these issues. And so I don't, I, you know, meat, milk, whatever. We, it, it's good the industry is, I guess, occupied with fighting about those things. But I don't feel that any of that stuff will in any way inhibit or restrict the social change that's going to happen as a result of the things that we're doing. Are there tactics being employed by the industry that you do think will have that effect? In particular, I'm thinking about, while not directly impacting consumers, certainly impacting a lot of Americans, the right-to-farm laws yeah. that are across, I believe, every every state now in the U.S. that deny the ability to bring a nuisance lawsuit well, in it, different ways or with different uh, limitations. It, it's such a great question. And, you know, I don't know. Um, Again, I think a lot of it, as I've aged, um, you know, my whole question of how social change occurs is, is, I think, very much up in the air. I mean, and I think how how the world changes today is so different from what it was 15 or 20 years ago that, again, it's hard to know what the role of those things are anymore. Like, you know, when I was in, in college, you know, you changed things by drafting a law. Um, drafting a law and then marching on Washington and getting an agency to pass regulations and enforcing them, you know, EPA, you know, the Endangered Species Act, regulations under the USDA. No one would think of trying that today. It's just not worth anyone's time. There's no likelihood of success anyway. And, you know, marching, it happens occasionally, but that's just not how social change occurs now. It happens through social media. It happens through corporate campaigns. It happens through, you know, public education. It happens through transparency and labeling. It happens through God knows what. And in two, two years, it'll be different from what it is today. So... Um, there are definitely tactics like the right to farm laws and all of those things. I just, again, don't know how much that really will make a difference. I mean, there are definitely tactics. If you go into the wildlife space, for example, the way that the um, industry and the government is trying to do these pay-to-play things where you can just pay to hunt animals and that's a way of raising money and it's really needed. Those things can be very damaging. But again, I see those more as a question of timing rather than ultimate consequence. Because I do feel that over time, 
the momentum is very much on the right side of the issue. And so the things that worry me the most are always the, the, the you know, what industry does is it fights you until it knows what you want is coming and then it takes a step back and tries to embrace it itself. You know, so it'll pass its own regulations, which control they control themselves, and they're just really crap. Or, or it'll, um, you know, say we'll do it, but we'll do it in ten years. Well, eight years go by. Sorry, it's taking us longer. We'll do it in another five years, and so on. So I, I think you know the industry is always going to do delaying tactics, and that's harmful without doubt. Um, where will we end up in fifty years? I, I don't. I'm not convinced those tactics will make that much difference, and where the population ends and what they think about these things, whether they think it's really right or wrong to raise animals this way, to eat them and so on. I, I think those things have a, a separate path in a way. They're just these things at a lower level. But um, unfortunately, time is not something we have a luxury about at the moment, given the state of the planet. And that's the stuff that worries me more, I think. Like, how do we make sure that we change where we're going in a quick enough time period? I recently read, it was from uh a couple decades ago now, I believe, I don't remember the publication date, but a book by Wendell Berry called The Unsettling of America. And he has a chapter in it entitled Agribusiness as Orthodoxy, in which he makes an argument, which isn't directly about the legal system, though I think it really applies, and your work shows that it applies, that in America today, the broader orthodoxy of industrial progress, but particularly with agribusiness, has led to a sense of the consequences to animals in terms of suffering, to the environment, in terms of pollution, to the workers, in terms of maltreatment in the facilities and bad conditions is inevitable and just part of industrial progress mm-hmm. and that the accounting system is such that there's an internal accounting that the law takes in, takes into account of uh, you know what counts and what doesn't. And then there's the external costs to society and all these other players um, that aren't included and that this has become so pervasive as to even infiltrate local courts and local governments and decision makers and zoning boards and so forth. And so I wonder if, if uh, that idea of you know orthodoxy being someone presuming to know the truth about a system as opposed to looking for it mm-hmm. is in many ways kind of broken by the animal question or at least shaken by the animal question especially since clearly people, once they've been educated, seem to relate and care for the animal in particular. So it's, it's an interesting um, animals as a way of getting at this much broader I think that's right. system. I think that's right. Um, and again, the question is always, you know, I, I, I think, again, for me at this moment is is – you know, what are the most effective tools to – I mean, the rea- I think the reality they described is very accurate. Um, and I do agree with you that the animal issue can be a very, you know, um, what's the right word I'm looking for? Something that really shines a spotlight on all of these questions. And then the real question for me – and I think, again, it goes back to, you know, when you asked me about the 1990s was, okay, but what is the most effective and efficient way to cause something to happen that will make everything better than it is today? And – I, for one, struggle daily wondering how much, you know, as a lawyer, I should be focused on the law, one would think naturally, or on legal tactics. And there are some brilliant people working on legal tactics that are highly effective. But I, I, I am uncertain and confused about how relevant that role is today in order to change the way people do things and make things different. What do you enjoy about teaching? And in particular, I think that – so I should say too for any listeners who don't know that you've been – in addition to everything else that you're doing for animals, that you are – been a strategic godfather of sorts, an advisor and um, an and advocate of the – secret weapon I think is the is the right word for all the, the new animal um, programs that have arisen at universities in the last couple of years, most notably at Harvard and at NYU. Um, 
and in a way, I think this question of students is directly relevant to your quote about making change funeral by funeral yeah. in that you're making a long-term play of shifting society and shifting sentiments um, with future leaders in a way that I've always found very appealing and hopeful about teaching and that clearly we're all limited in what we can accomplish in our own lifetimes directly uh, by all sorts of factors. But then in some ways you're planting seeds for the future. So like the potential of what your work will be will far outlive you, um, but will continue hopefully to revertebrate for animals for a long time to come. But I wonder what what, what is it that attracts you about teaching and what well, is your experience Well, I mean, been? I think you perfectly articulated a fair amount of it in, in, your, in your lovely question. Um, I, I do um, – I mean, I do enjoy teaching very much. Um, I've taught at law schools and now I teach undergraduates. I like both. I'm probably more excited about undergraduates now, not because law, law students are not exciting. They're wonderful people. But people who go to law school tend to have already def- decided their path. Uh, and when I meet them, they've already decided the path because I meet them later in their career in law school. So I'm not really going to change what they're doing. Whereas if you meet an undergraduate student, you can really have an impact um, and hopefully in a positive way. I mean I, I, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to meet so many wonderful people on an annual basis. They are – and they're, they're a generation that – and as a you know, you guys as well, I mean who are facing – very, very difficult problems and they're for the most part, I mean we're obviously self-selective in that people who come take these classes have a great deal of interest. But they're incredibly, you know, impassioned and driven to try and help and make a difference. Um, it's also wonderful for me because – I mean I'm very fortunate in this respect because, you know, I have young children and um, I manage a firm which means I meet 50-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 20-year-olds and then I get to teach 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 21-year-olds. So. I get to at least have a sense of where everyone is along their, the, 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 in their life and on how they approach issues. I value that very, very much. But, you know, I mean, the subject of animals is um, – it's not really about – it's as much about them as it is about us. And that's what I've always really enjoyed about teaching the subject, which is we'll spend a lot of time talking about animals, but we'll spend an probably similar amount of time talking about what it is about us that has caused us to distinguish ourselves from them and how valid is that and how can it be justified and I do think there are times when it is valid and it is justified but what does that mean as a consequence in terms of what we have to do and what our roles are and I'm always um, that journey and watching people go through a process where you know people may come in on either side of the issue but testing themselves and forcing people to to really have to – and this is maybe, again, a, a lovely marriage of the legal training and, and the undergraduate teaching is I can be a little more, you know, okay, fine, but you have to justify that position. You have to really support that point on either side of it. And then what I also particularly like teaching, and I hope that I'm somewhat successful with this, is academia is wonderful, but I think it's rare it's, – it's, it's, it's not as usual for your students to meet people who have actually operated in the real world for a lengthy period of time. And that doesn't mean universities are bad. It just means that there's an element that should be included in the university experience. And I very much enjoy 
introducing people to how the real world operates. So, okay, fine, you want to do good, so let's talk about what that means. Let's talk about how you really operate, what you need, and how the real world works. And let's talk about some experiences, and let's bring in people from the outside who can tell you what their experience was like, you know, like Doug brings into the L class or whatever. And to me, that's a wonderful thing to do because you have someone who – and you can only think back on your own experiences in terms of where you were at at your particular point in life when you were in college. But, you know, to, to have someone who doesn't have a sense of what they really want to do but has um, an ideal or a passion to try and do some good in the world and to try and make a difference and then to be able to introduce them to individuals that have actually followed through in their passion and to show them a, a road to achieve that because everything seems very un, unclear when you're 19, 20, 21, 22, well, I want to do good in the world, but what does that mean? Well, the answer is, well, meet someone who just spent three years running a ballot initiative campaign or meet someone who did did this or that or went to law school or went to business school or whatever to do something. And I just think it's so exciting when when you meet people who want to do something positive in the world and you give them some insight and guidance into doing that. Um, and, you know, what, what more fun and what, what bigger, you know, value can you do in terms of teaching? So, uh, I, you know, I love teaching. And uh, the NYU program and the Harvard program, but you get the opportunity to meet all these people. And we've seen so many of my students have ended up in these animal protection organizations or doing work in other areas. And, um, and I think that's also, you know, you, it gives them hope that they can actually achieve things. So it was a very long-winded answer to the question. but So I, I do value teaching immensely. No, it was a great answer. And it was making me think that in our introduction when we said you were the Superman, which is very accurate, <laughs> one element of that metaphor or analogy that's not accurate is that when you have Superman, you have Superman and Clark Kent as two separate entities that aren't integrated and mm-hmm. operate totally separately. And one thing that's really fascinating about you – is that you're, you've got the Superman and the Clark Kent element completely – you're just Superman, I guess, is, my, is the takeaway of what I'm getting at here, where you've, you don't have your corporate life as one element and then completely separately you do animal things, that you've really enmeshed them. No, it, that's, that's actually that's – Which a is very, fascinating. I mean, firstly, I'll take all compliments about being Superman, none of them being true, but I appreciate it. But one of the, thing, one of the things I've really enjoyed about my career path, and it's one of the things I try to pass on to people is – how everything can be of value in what you're doing. You just may not know yet what it is. So it can be simple things. So, you know, for example, in my job managing the law firm, we moved our office recently and I got to spend a lot of time interviewing food service companies for the restaurant. And because I'm pretty senior and we're a very big organization, I got to spend lots of time on their sustainable farm products and their veganism and the this and that. And then we got to talk about how we build a system to be more environmentally whatever. And then we go and we roll out our pro bono program. So I have other lawyers in London working for Animal Equality or the Humane League. And then I go teach and I meet the, everything connects to everything. And when you network and you know, I do things in various locations. I can meet someone up. I, I do a bunch of stuff up at Harvard, not only for animal stuff, but through my law firm. I'll meet a brilliant economist who's just like a brilliant, brilliant economist at Harvard. And I'll be like, what are you working on? He's like, well, you know, I'm really freaked out about climate change. And I think my next issue is going to be food. I'm like, great. So let me introduce <laughs> you to this person, this person, this person. And you just keep building it. Everything is integrated. And I do feel that if you live if you take your path openly, that is, you express – you can have any career, but if you express your interests openly and you find other people who share those passions, it can be just so much fun. Uh, you can meet people to do the 
most different things that will all have something of value to give. So, but that again, the, the, one of the advantages of having a law path in a large law firm is it gives you the ability to do a lot of things. Has navigating those two spaces given you any insight into the psychology of being a stakeholder in these industries? I, I think, you know, I, I've had to navigate, you know, some conflicts within my law firm, some of the clients we've had, and I've had to come to my own sense of comfort with what I, where I work and what we do. I mean, we're a really great clean energy law firm. We do renewables and biomass and wind. But the reason we're a great clean energy law firm is we're a great energy law firm, which means we do coal, we do glass, you know, we do oil. So those things definitely. Um, I'm certainly probably closer to how large companies operate and I know a lot of people in them and, you know, that may be to some people good or bad depending on where you are in the political spectrum and how you think things occur. Um, my own experience has been that, you know, again, I will be amazed. I, I mean, okay, here's a, uh, here's a story. So I, um, I have to do PR for my firm I want to get to know legal consultants in the space because they get interviewed by people and they say things about law firms. It's good if I have relationships with them. Maybe they'll say something nice about us. So I reach out to someone who's very senior in the industry. I say I want to talk to him. I say these are the things I want to talk to you about. He listens to me for 20 minutes. He says that's really interesting. But by the way, the only reason I took this call because of your, of your animal rights work. And I've done animal rights for the last 30 years. I've been a vegetarian for blah, 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 blah. I live in China. I want to do all this. I mean who would have thought, Right. You just never know what people are doing. Also, I'm very aware – and this is – I'm happily not answering your question, but I'll try to answer it. <laughs> but um, I am moved by animal rights. It just gets me. When I was growing up and I was in college, I was doing – it was a long time ago, but I was doing environmental work and anti-apartheid work and anti-contra work and you know everything and human rights work. And I went to law school thinking I was going to be a human rights lawyer. No, no I was going to be an environmental rights lawyer. But none of them spoke to me the way that animal rights does. Um, and so I stayed in the space. But I know other people who are incredibly committed to other issues that I'm not committed to who do – and these can be people in my space or externally who do great work um, but they're just not in, but they're just not moved by my issue. But I'm not moved by theirs. And so when I judge my own life path and I look at how I'm doing – I'm like, you know, I'm doing really well for animal rights. I sure as hell hope that the animal's going to make the decision when it, the, the time comes. But if it's someone who's really interested in, you know, farm union labor issues in South America, I've got trouble. So, I mean, it's a long-winded way of saying I don't find – if there's anything going on, you know, at the, with most exceptions, or, I mean, there are certainly some exceptions to how people manipulate things and do things. It's just, you know, people who are um, – stressed and working hard trying to get the, get through life and look after the things they care about. And inevitably, when you get to know them, they have a passion of doing good for something. It just doesn't necessarily be the, the thing that, you know, that we're driven by. I'm not sure I answered the question, but it was a meandering answer. Surely it's hard to explain the reasons for any passion, if, mm -hmm. if possible. But why do you think it was animals in particular that was yours? I think probably similar to a lot of people, I guess I have a real thing about an imbalance of power. Uh, I'm really bothered by, um, in you know, the misuse of power, and I guess I like to go where I think the energy is the gro the greatest, or the imbalance is the greatest. Um, and so, 
and I am totally in support of and moved and motivated by all the, you know, terrible treatment of humans in numerous contexts by other humans. But when I, it just seemed I was seeing something that for some reason other people were not seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed clear to me from probably, I'd be interested in knowing about what you guys and the background for you, but for a large number of people in the movement, it's something that they just were aware of before they even could articulate being aware of it. And um, I just get bothered by that, you know, and and that's what what drove me. It just seemed the most – I mean it's clearly – again, it speaks to me as particularly vulnerable beings being treated in an obviously terrible way for a not very good reason. That also happens to be remarkably destructive in numerous ways. And just something about that imbalance of power, that huge dis- lack of even awareness of of that of the harm, just you know bothered me. I mean, I probably I mean I, I've spoken to a fair number of people who who have felt some sense of disempowerment themselves as individuals, and that usually drives them into some sort of you know it can go one of two ways. Uh, but um, and I was I was bullied when I was at school a little bit. But I, I think it's no more than that. I just see a particularly unfair wrong. And it bothers me more than anything for some reason. Ursula Le Guin has this story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas about a town whose prosperity depends on the torture and suffering of one child who's kept in a basement mm-hmm. as a ritual in the town mm-hmm. at the age of around 12. All the kids have to go and witness the child and then navigate how they're going to respond. And once they learn that the prosperity depends on the suffering, most of them try to come to terms with it, but there are some who leave the town, um, hence the title of the story. But it's interesting with animals because, I mean, we don't have to face it. It's on our plate, but we don't have to go visit no. the factory farms. And 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 yet, it's almost it's we do know what happens. And we do know that it's, unlike in the story, not necessarily a necessary condition of our flourishing. Right. And once you see it, for some of us, you can't unsee it. I mean, I remember when I first became aware of certain issues and then you just start to see it everywhere. You know, I remember I went through a period most animal rights people do when I would just be like throwing things at the television because you'd see how animals were used in commercials. You'd see this falsehood, you know, the matrixiness of it, the whole thing. I remember when, I mean, for, I don't know if it happened for you with me when we were growing up. It always it ha- happened in science lab. It's like, you know, E.T. where he lets the, f- the frog go or whatever. Um, you know, I had to experiment on a, on a mouse or a rat. And I did. I, 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 I did. And then when I was in college, there was a biology class I had to take, and it was something about crushing bees or something. And... I just remember that the second one I didn't do. The first time I did when I was younger, I did it. But I never shook it off. Like I knew, I just had a sense that I did something that I shouldn't have done. It just bothered me. And then the second one, I didn't. And I was like the only person in the class that wasn't doing it. I sat outside and I was at Duke and I sat outside. I think there was one other guy who came out and he was just like, that's sort of silly. Um, and I remember when I did my psychology class, Entered a psychology class and there was the um, – what's the guy's name? The guy did those horrible experiments with monkeys 
where they would hollow. Yeah, hollow. And, you know, you see, and they show the videos mm-hmm. of the uh, monkey shivering on the metal monkey. And I couldn't even hear the lesson. I was just so horrified by the video. And I remember I went up afterwards and I spoke to the professor about whether there'd been any discussion about the ethical appropriateness. This was like 1984, the ethical appropriateness of the, of the test. And he was just like, that's an interesting question. Um, but yeah, it, it's no what causes some people to be bothered by it, not others, you know. But again, this is the one that triggers me. There are other things out there in the world that I'm not triggered by that trigger other people, triggered, you know, by, for other people. So it's a very selective thing. But, uh, yeah, it's just always been there. What do you make of the analogy between animals and children in trying to think through the issue of how do you speak for these beings if they're not legible to the law? I think on a legal perspective, it's actually quite a useful analogy. Um, And it also points to the complicated nature of, in my view, making this a very simplistic argument that animals are things and people are, you know, persons and all you have to do is abolish the status of thinghood and then everything will be, you know, whatever, good, which I don't personally think it's as simple as that. And I always like to talk about in my class, well, what exactly are children? You know, are children things or are they persons? I don't know. I mean, they have this fine line. I have a great deal of authority over my children, certainly in the United States with issues of corporal punishment and decisions I make for them. And yes, there's a best interest of the child, but boy, does it lean into my own area. And one wonders really, and of course, there are issues of that there are reasons for that. And there are questions of cognitive ability, and it changes over time and so on. So, um, you know, I think that there, I think it's a really interesting case to look at. Because when you Think of imagining a world where you classify animals as something other than things. What exactly would it look like? And I do think in many ways children are the closest analogy we can get to what it would look like. And as I say, I'm not quite sure if my son and daughter are my property or not. And I don't mean that, you know, lightheartedly. I mean what exactly you know because they have, certainly have rights but it's it's very there's a whole bunch of stuff that i have complete control over so i mean and, and it brings also the area of you know how useful and how helpful it is to compare the animal rights struggle with other human rights struggles and how much on the spectrum it is i mean how useful is it to compare the animal rights movement with the civil rights movement or the anti-slavery movement or other issues. I'm not saying it isn't, but I think I, I, there's something so unique about the movement that we're all engaged in that while there is great value in analyzing it with the assistance of other movements, I think the facts are that we have, we have broken some new ground I mean, and that means how we deal with it is going to be very unique. And it doesn't always allow us to just copy or paste onto or assume that the pathway will be similar because it worked that way for human enslavement or human abuse. These are other beings with numerous classifications, with numerous categorizations of ability that don't articulate for the most part, but they do somewhat their own view and that are other species from ourselves. And I, that doesn't mean I don't that I'm diminishing the great similarities between us because there are humongous similarities. But how we how that 
social justice occurs as a result of that distinction and difference, how the legal path develops, you know, despite Steve's great work, how a court reaches a conclusion, how we draft things. It's, it's, it's complicated um, and very challenging. Hearing you speak about that dichotomy between persons and things in the law reminds me of a book I read recently by Robert McFarlane about the etymology of various nature words where he talks about how the old English definition of the word thing, T-H-Y-N-G-E, meant a narrative not fully known, mm. which is perhaps the yes. only way in which it's yes. accurately applied I, that's, to other that's animals. Great. <laughs> that's great. Well, to close, um, David, we'd like to ask each of our guests for two or three books or films that oh had a gosh. big impact. Oh, I can talk about films. Okay, have, that have had a good big impact on uh, how In terms they of the animal, about... animal interact, like impact on me in terms of animal awareness? Yes. Well, certainly... Um, Planet of the Apes. I'll start with Planet of the Apes. Um, the Charlton Heston film, not the Tim Burton remake or the recent films. Because to me, that was a fascinating film. I saw it as a child. I don't know how many people have seen it. It's a very classic 60s, 70s film. And the basic premise, as you all know, is a astronaut goes forward in time, lands on the planet, can't speak. The apes can speak and the humans are enslaved by the animals on the basis that they clearly can't communicate, they can't, clearly can't think for themselves, and therefore we're looking after them, it's in their own best interest. And um, when I saw that film, I was struck by how that was just um, – they were making a statement about the animal-human relationship. But when it was actually made, it was very much a uh, movie of the moment, which was the 60s uh, civil rights movement in America, the Watts riots, all of these things. And it was very much – the animals were basically a metaphor for – or a stand-in for African-Americans in you know, the United States or history generally, which is obviously true. But no one was looking at it as if it was an animal rights film. I was looking at it as if it was an animal rights film. It seems like the most obvious animal rights film. You even see them being experimented upon and vivisected and all of these things. And it just spoke to me. And I was just like, there's something going on there. And then um, I, just, I just couldn't shake it off. And then, of course, if you now see how the new Planet of the Apes films um, have uh, been rewritten to be very clear – animal protection arguments. And so it's sort of amusing to me again as time has gone on how the message has become very specific. So that movie has always had a big impact on me. Um, there was another film, but it was a long time ago, called The Animals Film. It was put together in like the 80s and it was narrated by Julie Christie. Uh, it was shown on British TV and it basically was an incredible introduction to all of the things that happened. And now... Funnily enough, because it has some terrible messages in it, but I'm reading my son the uh, C.S. Lewis Narnia books. Mm. And now reading them again, I was like, well, of course I like these books. I mean, you know, Jesus or God. I mean, I, I, that you can totally read those books without having any understanding of the religious you know, messaging in there. They're just adventure stories for most people. And they're very much of their time, so they obviously have, you know, some bad things going on in them. But the bottom line is that every the, 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 the emperor or the god of the whole book is a lion, an animal. All the animals can speak and articulate their own views and visions that, you know, that humans are not special and that there's a sort of relationship between the two of them. And, um, and these children are... Uh, basically fighting for justice 
for animals. Uh, now, everything is, you know, people read it the way that they feel it. It's like I, I see a Disney movie and I think every Disney movie is an animal rights film. I actually think every Disney movie is an animal rights film, but that's another point. So when I read the Narnia books, that I didn't realize that what was speaking to me. But then when I'm reading them for my son and I'm just listening to myself talk through all these these things about the animals and what they're articulating and everything, I was like, well, I guess, I guess there was a reason why I was drawn to these. Very powerful books for me as a kid. It gave me a sense of right and wrong around animals in some way. David Wolfson, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, too, to our talented producers for this episode, Chad Bernard at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism and Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about David Wolfson and his work. Thanks for listening.